Hi, this is Erin James Brown. My pronouns are she, her, and hers, and I serve as the interim site pastor at Urban Village Church, Edgewater. Urban Village Church does bold, inclusive, and relevant ministry for people who were traumatized by church, people who feel overchurched, and even the non-churched folks. If you identify with any of these signifiers, we're so glad you're listening. Would you consider helping us continue this Jesus-loving ministry in and across Chicago and over the internet? You can make a generous recurring gift by going to our website, urbanvillagechurch.org backslash give. And thanks for helping us with your ears, actions, and dollars to build up God's kingdom on earth as it is in heaven. And now, here's the latest sermon. Today's scripture reading is from Genesis 25, 19 through 34. These are the descendants of Isaac, Abraham's son. Abraham was the father of Isaac, and Isaac was 40 years old when he married Rebekah, daughter of Bethuel the Armian of Paddan Aram, sister of Laban the Armian. Isaac prayed to the Lord for his wife because she was barren, and the Lord granted his prayer and his wife, Rebekah, conceived. The children struggled together within her, and she said, If it is to be this way, why do I live? So she went to inquire of the Lord, and the Lord said to her, Two nations are in your womb, and two peoples born of you shall be divided. The one shall be stronger than the other, the elder shall serve the younger. When her time to give birth was at hand, there were twins in her womb. The first came out red, all his body like a hairy mantle, so they named him Esau. Afterward, his brother came out with his hand gripping Esau's heel, so he was named Jacob. Isaac was 60 years old when she bore them. When the boys grew up, Esau was a skillful hunter, a man of the field, while Jacob was a quiet man living in the tents. Isaac loved Esau because he was fond of game, but Rebekah loved Jacob. Once when Jacob was cooking a stew, Esau came in from the field, and he was famished. Esau said to Jacob, Let me eat some of that red stuff, for I am famished. Therefore he was called Edom. Jacob said, First sell me your birthright. Esau said, I am about to die. Of what use is a birthright to me? Jacob said, Swear to me first. So he swore to him and sold his birthright to Jacob. Then Jacob gave Esau bread and lentil stew, and he ate and drank, and rose and went his way. Thus Esau despised his birthright. The word of God for the people of God. My name is Erin James Brown. My pronouns are she, her, and hers. I currently serve as the interim site pastor here at Urban Village Church Edgewater. I'm so glad that you are here. Will you pray with me? God who sees families, who knows the stress and mixed upness of family life, you, God, continue to work in and among us as a family so that we can be drawn closer together, that we can be in more authentic relationship, champion each other's dreams and hopes for the world because, God, we are all working towards your dream and hope 
for this world. And so we offer ourselves to you. May we be authentic with one another. May we be brave enough to be vulnerable with one another. And may we continue to offer gratitude for this community that you have gifted to us. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. So we've been working through the stories in Genesis. We're going to keep working through Genesis for the next couple of weeks, talking about families, what it means to make a family, how families are made. I'm not going to tell you how families are made. Families are made lots of different ways, and you can go to a sex education class somewhere else. But uh, we will talk about the complications of what family looks like in family life, but also knowing that we are a family here, a community of faith that gets our lives mixed up together. So much like our story from last week, Rebecca, you remember, uh, of Isaac and Rebecca, you remember Isaac is the son of Abraham and Sarah, the really old parents. Uh, I, Rebecca and Isaac are also getting along in age. The text doesn't tell us how old Rebecca is, but Isaac is supposed to be 60 years old. He is 40 when they get married. This is 20 years later after their wedding. And so in their old age, the two are trying to grow an addition in their family. Perhaps they've been trying for these last 20 years. But unlike their parents, Isaac and Rebecca come to God in prayer. Uh, prayer specifically about this situation. Isaac's compassion for his wife's grief and probably his own grief uh, leads him. to. And then God hears this prayer and responds. Now, we'll take a time out because Rebecca does become pregnant, but we also know that this is a 1% chance maybe, and 1% isn't always the truth for all of us. This is another reminder for us, much like our story last week, that God recognizes the painful desire to grow one's family and includes these stories of pain into our scripture, believing that this, is a, this particular pain is real. So God sees the stress and suffering that some people have as they wait by the phone for the IVF uh, the fertility clinic to call. God sees the stress and suffering every time someone pees on a stick and wants to know what that answer is, whether it's positive or negative. God knows uh, and that these stories about conception are stressful for family life, and so God includes them in Scripture over and over again because the reality of the experience, the reality of conception, the reality of giving a safe birth, the reality of raising a human is kind of terrifying. So this story makes visible the fact that getting pregnant doesn't mean that everything is roses and everything is A-OK -okay after that because uh, we, sh we should note that Rebecca's birth and pregnancy doesn't go super well. Uh, as we, Rebecca's pregnancy is difficult and pain probably caused her some fear to worry about a miscarriage. Her body seems precious and out of control. And so Rebecca cries out to God for an answer, and God responds by revealing a truth that she probably didn't know before, that there's not just a child, but there's two in there. This divine-like ultrasound, God displays with a grainy image what's happening inside of her body. There's not just one, but two babies, these two siblings vying it out against each other. So this story is about families, but it's a larger story that God is trying to tell about the relationship and nation of Israel and the relation of God with God's people. God's people and those of God's relatives, allies, sometimes competitors. So this birth narrative, we have Esau and Jacob. Esau, uh, and their two names mean a lot of things, and a lot of things about this story being described as hairy or red or a heel, all are uh, being played with in the Hebrew language. So let's 
put on again, sometimes I like to do this, put on my Hebrew hat, my Hebrew nerd hat, and help us understand the history, not only of these two people, but the history of a peoples uh, that God is trying to tell us. Esau is described as red, which is a word that denotes strength, hard work, ruddiness, and hunting. And the descendants of Esau, the Edomites, before establishing a monarch, they were thought by scholars to be strong people who lived off of hunting the land, roaming throughout the place to provide for their food and sustenance. But Esau is also described as hairy. Does anybody know someone who's hairy? Uh, I'll raise my hand because I know I am hairy. This is actually not a reference to my physical body and probably maybe was a reference to Esau's physical body, but it was also a reference, they believe, to the Edom, uh, Ser, the mountains in the area, was probably before very lush. And so the description is for the mountains where the people come from, hairy. Uh, but it's also a physical description of who Esau is. Jacob then uh, is described as what he physically does. Jacob, as they're wrestling in the womb of their mother, it's thought to believe that he gripped onto his brother's heel as if to whip his brother back inside. This is why wrestlers, well, I don't know if this is why, I'm just assuming this is why wrestlers, the villain is called the heel. They take and they whip them back around, pulling them inside. And so Jacob is wrestling his brother inside of his mother's womb. And Jacob is sometimes interpreted, later is interpreted mean God provides, but in some other interpretations can be interpreted as heal. And so Jacob will continue his whole life wrestling. We'll see. Jacob is not the first one to spit out. But Esau comes flying out with the responsibilities and privileges of birthright. And then these two boys grow into the skills that have been described by their names. Esau roams the wild looking to provide for his family while it is believed Isaac remains at home to tend to the crops and the animals. And the two seem in some ways, I imagine, to maintain this distance from each other. When they come back into the house at the end of the day, there's tension in the room that you can cut with a knife. And so they're moving through in silence, avoiding each other. And then it hits a peak this one day when Esau returns and is, enters the house starving and in search for food. And he asks his family for whatever is heating up on the stove already, this red stew, which they believe was supposed to provide vigor for someone who is deep in hunger. And Isaac, that always that heel, looking for the opportunities to whip his brother back around, sees that his brother is vulnerable and looks for this eldest position he has always coveted. So Jacob uses his brother's desperation to his advantage and trades a bowl of stew for a birthright, using hunger for his advantage. And so we see through this story uh, that you can both be complicated and a champion of scripture because most of you have probably heard of Jacob and maybe heard very little of Isaac, but also both, both men are deceivers. We see through the story of Rebecca and Isaac and Jacob and Esau, a complex family system that gets a little muddied as we tend to unwrap it and think through it. It's one of pain and secrets and exploitation. And it's unclear to us, where does Rebecca go at the end of this? After these babies have battled inside her womb, has she told anyone about this prediction God has shared with her postpartum? And then what happens of Jacob? We know that he loves Esau, but he says nothing to his... Uh, he says nothing or we hear nothing from him in this story about his involvement in their lives. 
What are they hiding from their boys, if anything? What if they had shared more of themselves and of this longer history? Would that have broken up this tension that the boys had built within themselves, uh, sharing that there was enough of an inheritance to go between them? So there's a lack of transparency in the story, but there's also these brothers that have built this relationship of competition with one another based not on vulnerability, but based on competing and uh, that spills out into generations. Esau doesn't trust his brother, probably maybe for good reason. Uh, and Isaac has selfish ambition within himself. Maybe that selfish ambition was placed inside of him because the text says that his father favored his brother. I wonder if my father favored my sibling, if I would constantly be seeking for my own approval and my own advancement. And so we read that these family systems can force us into patterns of behavior. This family system has forced Jacob and Esau to continue portraying out this battle their whole lives, one that started in the womb then becomes something that affects generations after them. These retelling of narratives force people into stereotypes that can make change difficult. And there's a, a string of family systems theory that believes that we are told narratives from our birth. Narratives that we believe we have to live into. Uh, I have a friend who his family, I'm not going to sing the song for you because I'm a terrible singer, um, but his family would sing a song to him as a child saying, Paul is a good, good boy. Paul is a good, good boy. Good, good boy is Paul. And this is a story he grew up knowing about himself, his parents wanting to infuse the best into him to be and grow into a good boy and a good man. And Paul did grow into be a good, good boy, a good, good man. And yet he also was uh, hindered by the sense of any time he did something wrong, any time he made a mistake, it was also taking away some part of his identity. He was no longer a good, good boy, a good, good man. And so these narratives that get fused into our lives are parts of our parents like trying to teach us something good about who we can be, but also can become hindrances in our identity. I was taught as a child, I'm creative and I'm unique. And so now if I'm not being creative or unique or flouncy or saying a ridiculous thing, then I don't have an identity. This is not the truth about me. I can be quiet and demure and I don't have to say anything ridiculous. You don't always see that. You see me on Sunday mornings, but... This is a narrative I continually and regularly live into for the good and for the detriment of who I am. And so these are narratives we've been taught about Jacob and Esau, and we're going to hit pause. Beep. And we're going to try and back up and retell this story. In family systems theory, there's also this um, family systems theorist named Edwin Freeman who knows all the things about family systems and it's very complicated. But what he likes to do is he likes to take old stories from the Bible and also like stories like Cinderella and Snow White and complicate for us the histories of what those families are doing behind the scenes. And so we're gonna do a little bit of that this morning with Jacob and Esau. The thing is, I believe if Edwin Freeman was going to retell this story. He would tell the story about these two brothers who are unable to be vulnerable with each other. This constant competition, one being hairy and one being pastoral, one being the roamer out searching for food and one being at home constantly tending to the flock. These two characters, people, are constantly fighting with each other because their lifestyles are totally different. 
They're also unable to confess to one another when they need help because their lives are about competing with each other and not about living and sharing with one another. And so they're unable to reveal to one another when they are hungry, when they are desperate, when they are starving, not just for uh, food, but for love and attention. And so their relationship is not built on a relationship of trust, but on a relationship of keeping things secret, on hiding who they really are from each other because they're fearful of how the other will react. And so these twins grow up in this system that only reinforces competition, that reinforces um, hostility and rather than speaking honestly. And these young men then grow up into these men that we now see in our text. So they're not being authentic with each other. They continue to compete with each other, leading to these powerful stories of deception. And that's their family system. But we know that family systems don't have to remain the same. That who we are told and taught that we should be is not who we have to stay our whole life long. That when we react differently within families, we then, it takes a lot of willpower, a lot of bravery to do something totally different than what the whole system is telling you you should be or should be doing. But when you're able to step out in bravery and act differently, wrestle with your own inner demons and wrestle with your own inner thoughts and perceptions of yourself, you can change your behavior and then restore and change the relationships that you are within. Studies show um, that by digging out some of those family secrets, those family narratives and stories that we tell ourselves, that we then can share those with each other and they don't have as much power over us. I like to think about, um, we have this family at our Hyde Park Woodlawn site. They're a family that struggled to get pregnant Realizing they weren't able to get pregnant, they decided to adopt. And so they adopted this beautiful boy into their lives. Their young son is black. They are two white parents. And rather than telling, rather than not sharing with their son how their son came in to be with their, in their lives, they tell the story at his birthday every year about his birth mother, the woman who saw a book of pictures of these two white faces describing themselves, and their mother said, I want to gift this child to the family. And so they tell the story of their birth mother being gracious enough to share of their son with them. And anytime adoption comes up within their family, it's not a secret that they hold from each other, but it is something they regularly talk about and share, normalizing that families are formed in so many different ways, that it's not just what we might learn in our sex education class. Maybe you had a good sex education class and even learned what that was about, but it's also about what, how families are formed in different ways. And so when adopt, studies show that when adoptive families talk openly and regularly about how it about how adoption happens, then the child feels more permission in order to learn more about who they are, but they feel more secure in their family as well. Their adoptive family feels like their family because it has been normalized for them. Those then through, who encounter them throughout their life, they don't feel ashamed to tell their story. And that then creates removing this stigma around how families are created, what a normal, healthy family looks like. And so by continuing to uh, unpack how families are created, this adoptive family challenges systems of how families are created, systems of how beautiful families can function. Um, and 
Every child is unique. Every adoption experience is unique. We won't always be able to answer the questions for each other whenever a child comes asking questions to their parents. This family from Hyde Park Woodland, I don't know that they always have all the answers for their child either, but they know, their child knows, that this is a safe place to ask those questions about themselves and about the world in which they move, that by coming with honest answers, they can trust that they can be considered and work through over the course of an entire lifetime this understanding of who they are, this understanding of who they are in a family, that questions are open to interpretation and change as this family continues as a loving, living organism that thrives on this development. So when we talk about you and I, when we talk about in our testimonies about our experience with IVF, or infertility, or miscarriage, when we talk about uh, surrogacy and adoption, we are expanding the ways that we think about family and our community's understanding of what family could be. We relieve the power that secrets can have in our lives of how families are created, opening us up to normalizing authentic relationships for the rest of society to emulate. And then family systems, once the baby gets there, <laughs> become complicated. These narratives that we continue to live into as we try and be open and authentic with each other, there are still ways to change and change our behavior and interact with the others in our family. We know this is true because we didn't read this this morning, but the story of Jacob and Esau ends maybe differently than you would ever think. These brothers who wrestle from the very beginning continue to grow estranged and separated in Genesis 32, Jacob knows that they are about walking on the road, about to meet Esau and the rest of his family, knowing that this collision is coming along the road, knowing and fearing how his brother will receive him. Jacob decides he wants to do something different. Rather than continuing to wrestle with his brother, continuing to force these relationships that have always been the part of who they have been grown up to be, he decides to send emissaries ahead of him, send gifts ahead of him as the store, this chance to repair and restore a relationship that has always been broken, that has from the very beginning been a stress in their lives. And so he sends forth these presents, not knowing who or how he will be greeted by his brother and a large group of people that are coming with his brother that could easily attack him, like, like uh the army of the dead large. And <laughs> I don't know if you're watching Game of Thrones. If you're not, don't worry about it. Uh, Jacob comes prepared to reconcile. And in Genesis 33, it is as beautiful as you can imagine. Esau comes knowing that their relationship has been fraught and strained. He sees his brother is reacting in a totally different way. Rather than that heel that whips around, he has become the brother who grabs him by the shoulders and looks him full in the face to say, I'm sorry and I love you. They greet each other with hugs and with tears, shedding all of the pretense of what their life has been before, knowing that they can start anew again, trying their relationship anew again by being authentic with one another, prepared to say, I'm sorry to one another, brave enough to ask for forgiveness and brave enough to offer gratitude to one another. This is the hope we have in the kingdom of God as well. As we try to continue to be in relationship with one another and live together, we try to live more authentically as who we are, not as the narratives we were told growing up, but also living more authentically by turning towards each other. And so the bravery that we learn from Jacob and Esau is that relationship takes authenticity. 
It takes us the willingness to say, I need some forgiveness, and the willingness to offer that forgiveness to one another. It takes the authenticity to say, I need some help. I'm struggling and I'm hurting and I'm hungry. And it takes the willingness to come to one another and offer that care, sharing with one another. Being in authentic relationship also takes a little bit of bravery. It takes us being willing to engage the past because Jacob and Esau come along the road to one another, not forgetting everything that has happened, but remembering and deciding to move forward from it. Uh, I've been, as I was thinking about researching what authentic relationships and the restoration of authentic relationships looks like this week, I read some research around the Truth and Reconciliation Commission of South Africa as the country was trying to rebuild and restore itself after apartheid, bringing together people of white and people of color who had been separated their whole lives and never taught to interact with one another. They were trying to restore a whole nation. And what they realized was there were totally different truths that they were dealing with. Some people had an understanding, this is the narrative I was told my whole life of how I was to behave, who these other people were, and how I was to interact. And here's the factual truth. Here's what actually happened. But that doesn't make either of these two truths different or negative or bad or untrue. The truth that we are told about ourselves is true. And then the factual truth is also true. And so the Reconciliation Commission decided in order to move forth into reconciliation truth, we have to recognize that there are multiple ways that truth can be had. That that doesn't make one bad or wrong or negative. So when someone comes at me, I say come at me, much like I imagine Jacob thought that Esau was gonna come at him. I come not prepared uh, to stand and defend myself and continue to wrestle for myself, but I come prepared with gratitude to say thank you. Thank you for coming to tell me how you really experienced this. Maybe your narrative is different than the facts of what happened or how I perceive the narrative to happen, but you were brave enough to tell me your experience of me. Sometimes we call these microaggressions. Somebody says something to you, it appears that they've uh, harmed you in some way and you wanna come and tell them how you were experiencing that. Someone is being brave enough to tell you about their, your, their experience of you. And so we also move through authentic relationships with gratitude. We're able to wrestle within ourselves um, what the things we need to deal with and know that that person is coming to us with authenticity and truth and grace and to say thank you. Thank you for being honest with who you are and your experience of me. This is what Esau does, coming with gratitude and graciousness when he didn't have to, to his brother in the middle of the road. Because he knew probably his brother had done some wrestling of his own. Because really, Esau had done some wrestling the night before. This is the great story of Jacob where he's standing by the middle of the, the lake and he wrestles in the middle of the night against what we then later learn is a divine creature and it knocks his hip out of socket and for the rest of his life he has been changed because he has wrestled with God. He has wrestled with this understanding of who he once was, who he once was in his relationship with his family and who he could be. Changed, gracious, and authentically restored. Will you pray with me? God, being in relationship is hard. Caring for one another is not easy. We are told our whole lives these narratives to live into, but we're also trying desperately, God, to be authentic to ourselves, live out who we are called to be by you. 
And doing that in community means that we are constantly working against each other, but also working in collaboration with each other. And so we ask God that you continue to help us be an authentic community, one that wrestles within ourselves so that we can more openly reflect, it, reflect your glory to the world, to be a, a, a community that bravely challenges multiple truths, is able to hold both and ways of thinking in this world so that, God, we can be more gracious to one another, so that, God, we can continue to celebrate with one another, with tears in our eyes reminding each other we continue to come back on Sunday mornings knowing we made it. God is good. We continue to be in relationship with each other. And so we pray in the name of our brother and friend, Jesus. Amen.